Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. That's the whole meaning of life, isn't it? Trying to find a place for your stuff. If you didn't have so much stuff, you wouldn't need a house. That's all your house is. It's a pile of stuff with a cover on it. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Elshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. We rarely think about it when we open our wallets, but everything we buy is garbage, eventually. Most stuff only worsens with age. It breaks down, breaks our heart, and sits in the basement for 30 years until finally we force our children to throw it out for us. This is hardly a new idea. From St. Anthony to Marie Kondo to George Carlin, who we just heard at the top of the show, the gurus of decluttering have preached for two millennia that the path to salvation begins in the Department of Sanitation. But is it really fair to blame the fullness of our garages for the emptiness of our souls? This week, we're talking about our belongings, what the older generation passes on to us, and what we leave behind when we're gone. Inheritance isn't just money that's willed to a person or taking over a parent's house. Inheritance is also their stuff, whether we want it or not. According to one study, the majority of us think our lives are too cluttered. An often quoted figure is that the average American home has 300,000 items in it. We did a national survey where we asked people over the age of 60, do you think that you have more things than you need, fewer things than you need, or just the right amount? David Eckert is a retired professor of sociology and gerontology at the University of Kansas. His recent book is called Downsizing, Confronting Our Possessions in Later Life. Eckert's survey found that 60% of respondents said they had more things than they needed. That translates into, what, 35 or 40 million Americans over the age of 60 who thinks their houses are over full. We also asked, if you had to move, how reluctant would you feel about moving for dealing with your things? And about 45% of people said they would be very reluctant. So again, that's tens of millions of people that are well aware of the predicament that they are living in the middle of. Eckert sees life as a journey where we collect things along the way without necessarily questioning whether we should keep them. I talk about a material convoy, and we go through life accumulating things. There's always things around us. We come home from the hospital, we're immediately installed in a room that has material possessions, and it goes on like that for the rest of our lives. And as we move into adulthood and later in life, we acquire things in order to perform our roles as parents or property owners or spouses or leisure participants, and things accumulate. After a while, there's a lot of things in a house. Some things in a house are cherished. Some things in a house are pretty ordinary. In fact, most things in a house are pretty ordinary. And there are also things in a house that are completely mysterious. Why are we such hopeless pack rats? Why do we collect things, even stuff we don't actually need? 
We are strange in that we have this concept that I call ownership. Humans are fairly unique in many ways in their relationship to the things that they own. Bruce Hood is a professor of developmental psychology at the University of Bristol in the UK. His most recent book is Possessed, Why Do We Want More Than We Need? We're not the only animal that owns anything on the planet. Many animals have tools or they might have possessions in terms of food or mates or territory. It tells us something about the relationship between our stuff and who we are. Our identities, in many ways, is signaled by what we can claim ownership over. So in a sense, our possessions are an extension of ourself. Over the years, Hood has studied people's connection to their belongings. One of the things I think is really fascinating is the emotional relationship that we have to certain objects. So, for example, some people are very attached to items which others regard as kind of worthless. It gets into the realms of sentimentality and our connection to objects that we feel are somehow very representative of ourselves or sometimes other people that we care about. So, for example, heirlooms or things that we inherit from loved ones. We have a very strong, passionate attachment to them and you can't destroy them because they represent something over and beyond just their material wealth. So if my Star Wars action figures and old Commodore 64 are my adult expression of the security blanket I dragged around as a kid, how are we supposed to throw anything out? Eckert suggests one reason we hold on to items we never actually use is what he calls the possible self. A possible self that I would like to be is often represented by possessions. All those cookbooks on the shelf I would like to be the person that cooked the recipe in those cookbooks. That box of yarn in the closet, I would like to be the person that crocheted all that yarn. I would like to be the person that really used those golf clubs to best effect. Those possessions promise a me in the future. And if I discard those possessions, then I have to admit to myself that I'm not going to cook those things, I'm not going to read those books, and I'm not going to follow through with those hobby materials. Bruce Hood says we're also vulnerable to three forces. The advertising that makes us desire new things, our nature, which makes us quickly tire of what we have, as well as compare ourselves to others, and the underpinnings of our economy, which is geared to constantly grow. This was partly as a consequence of industrialization, where we're producing more and more things. In order to stimulate the growth and economic demand, we had to make people want more and more things. Hood says the urge to pass things on to future generations can be traced thousands of years to burial sites where people were laid to rest with their personal possessions. When we transitioned from hunter-gatherers and settled down into communities at the end of the last ice age, some 15 to 20,000 years ago, there had to be a different way of interacting, and especially when it came to property. Now we were domesticating animals, cultivating crops, and forming farming. Now that meant there would be an accumulation of wealth, and so there had to be some regulations as to who had access to that wealth and how that could be transferred onto other generations, other words, inheritance. The idea of having possessions contributed to further organizing society. Hood says ownership became something of a glue for people to display and pass on their wealth. And if what we own solidifies our place in society, and we have this impulse to give our belongings to the next generation, that makes getting rid of them really hard. I think it's hard to accept that things that 
are meaningful to you may have no real value to anybody else, especially over generations. Dr. Kate Goldhaber is a clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychiatry at Loyola Medical Center in Maywood, Illinois. She says often the impulse to buy or keep objects is rooted in deep worries. The fear of running out, the fear of actually throwing anything away, like the real anxiety that comes with not having those possessions, even though it's completely irrational because they have no value. For the relatives of someone who has just died, the preoccupation with the things they left behind can be more about the emotions brought on by loss than the objects themselves. When you're in a different state of mind, oh, I would never fight about that, I would never worry about that, that's not what's important. It does seem like we have kind of a draw to focus on those things, maybe because they're things we can control and maybe because they're a little bit removed from the grief. Goldhaber says sometimes a relative's reaction to a loved one's stuff is a projection of their relationship or place in that person's life. Often people are bringing different roles and responsibilities to the table, and then when their relative is gone, they may feel like they want their contribution to be mirrored in kind of what is left behind for them. So I think that's often where things can get really contentious. Bruce Hood says we should consider the obligations our belongings create beyond the space they take up, things like their associated costs. The other problem is the stuff that you end up buying end up owning you in the sense because many things are bought on credit and that of course is not a good situation to be in. But then you have to maintain them, you have to insure them. There's all sorts of a legacy once you start to fill your life with things and they can end up being quite cumbersome. You know, just paying for storage space is something which is an additional cost. So I would suggest that downsizing, decluttering is not just good for the soul, it's good for the bank balance as well. Experts say don't wait too long to go through the things in the back of your closets and think about where they fit into your life. Here's Professor Eckert again. I would advise people perhaps earlier in their retirement years to have a phase of embracing their possessions. My advice is to show the things you love, those books, those tools, those gadgets. Oh my God, the box of family history, photo albums. So get them out and use them and explore them. And if now is not the time to reintroduce them into your life, then there's your answer. And if you're worried about how to handle the topic of downsizing with your parents, Eckert has this advice. When older people have started downsizing or divesting, when things are offered, just take them and take some more. Don't stand there and say, Ma, it's not my style. You know I don't like that style. Just shut up and take it. The real gift here is receiving the goods. You, the child, are giving the gift of receiving those things. And when someone is downsizing, you should show them respect and take the things that are offered. A lot of us have heard of Marie Kondo, author of the bestseller, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, which became a popular Netflix show. But have you heard about Swedish death cleaning? We'll find out more about that after the break. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence, 
Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high volume, high speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we talked about why we humans feel the constant need to acquire. The gentle art of Swedish death cleaning, how to free yourself and your family from a lifetime of clutter by Margareta Magnusson was published in 2017. In it, she details how people can organize their lives or the stuff in their lives so that they won't burden their relatives down the road. Where Kondo asked, does this shirt spark joy? Magnuson asks, will this shirt spark joy for my son in 10 years? I should say from the get-go that Swedish death cleaning is not about dusting and mopping up. It is not as morbid as it sounds. I think they've got a branding problem. Leanne Carter is a writer in New York. She and her son, who she describes as a minimalist, decided to give the Swedish death cleaning method a try. The first time I heard it, I thought, oh, crime scene unit from a Scandinavian police procedural. And of course, it's nothing like that. It's really extreme spring cleaning. I guess think of it as downsizing. I think it really occurred to me 25 years ago after my mom died, and I had the unhappy task of helping my dad to empty out the house and to downsize him into an apartment. And, you know, in the midst of grieving, I had to get rid of so much stuff. It really got me thinking about not wanting to burden my kids with all my stuff after something happens to me. It's not that I think it's imminent, but it's just, it's a new way of framing what I have. And I have just found that the more stuff you have, the more it fills the house. And if you get a bigger house, you just get more stuff to fill it up. After reading an article about Swedish death cleaning, Carter was inspired to tackle the many boxes she'd never gone through after her father died. She followed the steps Margareta Magnusson suggests. Start with a plan. Let your loved ones know what you're going to do. Make a list of important documents and passwords. Give your possessions away gradually, starting with less personal items. Donate what you don't want and keep some mementos for yourself. I had cartons from my dad's apartment who had died 10 years after my mom, and I had avoided them like the plague. They sat in my lower basement and they were a little toxic, but then my son said, come on, mom, I'll help you. We'll do this, we'll tackle them together. So that's exactly what we did. Carter discovered that dealing with the leftover financial records was a huge part of the job. There were checks dating back decades tax statements and everything you could possibly think of, which was daunting, but it was also helpful to see how he had organized it because he was very methodical. He was an engineer. And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to be this organized, but I'd really rather not do it with paper. Otherwise, it's just more clutter. So we've moved virtually all of our financials into the cloud password protected. We use a password manager to which my son has access in the event that something should happen to us. But also because I'm still a little old school, I also keep a backup notebook 
with all of the passwords written down, just in case. The experience prompted her to take a good look at her own possessions. Letting go wasn't always easy. What I realized, certain things that were hard to part with, I would look at the item and then I finally said, okay, I'm just going to take a photo of it because then I sort of still have it and I can let it go. Maybe that sounds silly, but it, it really worked for me. The thing about this, though, is that it's not a one-off. It's not something you say, okay, we're one and done, house is clean. It's really an ongoing process and a way of, of living and asking myself, does this particular item still serve me? And is it useful? Do I need it? I guess the key question that I asked myself with each item was, will anybody be happier if I keep this? And if the answer was no, I just had to let it go. Central to the idea of Swedish death cleaning is involving your family and friends. Including them in your organizing is likely to relieve stress later, even if they at first seem reluctant. That can be especially true when it comes to financial plans. Getting my son acclimated to where everything was was more of a process. We didn't do it all at once. One thing we did a few years ago is we went down to the bank and signed papers so that he would have access to our vault in the event that something happened. He has access to our password manager, and it, it's been a process. He has grown a lot in the last few years. He was recently married and has assumed a lot of responsibility in his own life. And as such, you know, I think he's really ready to be an executor for us much later rather than sooner. Professional organizer Judy Igwe-Inney owns the company Rescue My Space in Houston, Texas. She sees an optimism in the way Swedish death cleaning looks to the future. With Swedish death cleaning, it's not just about things that have meaning to you. It's about things that will have meaning for your family. Because a lot of times we don't think about the burden our family members will have once this stuff is theirs, essentially, once you pass. But that doesn't mean her clients find the process of letting go easy. I usually say, hey, if you haven't used it in two years, five years, you're probably never going to use it. A lot of times there's a lot of emotions in that. You know, it's letting go of the old me, if you will, especially if you were wearing these clothes when you were married at a time and now you're not married. And now to let go of that, the idea of the marriage at the time, I guess, that's what the clothes hold. So it's just a lot of just patience and just being very honest and open and sharing even my own personal stories that allow my clients to just relax and let me do my job and help them create an organized space. Bruce Hood thinks questioning why we really want to buy something is the first step toward preventing the clutter in the first place. Before you even open the wallet or sign the check, you got to ask yourself, why are you doing this? So if you're buying something for yourself, do I really need this? Is this really going to make me happier? Or is there another way of doing it? If you're buying for someone else, are they going to appreciate it? I'm not suggesting that we stop consuming. I, I don't think that's possible, of course. But we have to be a little bit more responsible about considering where things come from, the impact of it, and do we really need it? And if it's really to signal to other people our success, then I think we've got to ask our questions, why do we feel inadequate? And I think it's really just not trying to ignore our psychology, what makes us happy or feel successful or satisfied. So Stephanie, doesn't our economy on some level run on people buying a lot of stuff they don't actually need? 
Yeah, we buy a lot of stuff we don't need. You know, there was an economist by the name of Thorsten Veblen, who I remember reading as an undergraduate, and he wrote this book called The Theory of the Leisure Class. And in the book, he coins the term conspicuous consumption just to describe people buying expensive things for the purpose of displaying their wealth or their income, not because they actually need those things. But now instead of displaying a lot of the things we buy, we pack them away in our pantries and our garages and our sheds. Nobody even knows we have them. Yeah, now it's more like inconspicuous consumption. It's funny to me because there have always been pack rats in history long before we had Amazon making it easy to buy anything in the universe. And I think a lot of us through the past couple of years just made a ton of purchases because we were stuck at home and bored. Retail stores have figured this out a long time ago, right, with the idea of putting impulse items right near the cash register so that you'll pick something up that you weren't planning to walk out of the store with, a pack of gum, a magazine. But, you know, when you're impulse shopping and you're in a pandemic, it doesn't have to be like a small purchase. You can end up spending a lot of money on things you never intended to buy. Maybe you're scrolling around a website and next thing you know, you're buying an expensive bread maker or you know, a piece of exercise equipment, something like that. These things can cost hundreds or thousands of dollars. So the question is, now that you've gone out and purchased all this stuff, are you happy you did or do you regret it? Are you actually going to use it or is it just going to lie around? So the appeal of Swedish death cleaning is really forcing everyone to think about this in advance. Most people don't feel an urgency to deal with the basement and the attic and all the junk drawers. Being proactive about this certainly wasn't high on my list, but this episode really made me think I probably need to start dealing with it now. Understanding why we collect so much stuff might be the key to freeing ourselves and our relatives from the weight of our belongings. We're never too old or too young to take stock of what objects in our lives are worth holding on to, and what aspects of our inheritance we might be better off sparing future generations. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a review. As you probably know, it's the best way for other listeners to discover us. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question you'd like us to answer in our upcoming mailbag episode, drop us a line or send us a voicemail at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to David Eckerd, Bruce Hood, Kate Goldhaber, Judy Igwe Inney, Lauren Kaplan, and Leanne Carter. To learn more about Swedish death cleaning, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers, and our associate producer is Hannah Libowitz Lockhart. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. And the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Katie Ferguson. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective, Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.